All right. Around here, we call that going full Hiram. <laughs> that is awesome. Um, okay, a couple of a, a couple of kind of housekeeping things. One, you know, the Paul, when you when you talk about those um, the holiday things, that here's what strikes me about that always. That means someone proposed that, like filled out forms probably for it, and officially got that recognized somehow. That some people's lives just weigh less heavily on them than mine does. I think. Like, I just <laughs> every time I hear that, I'm like, who? Anyway, okay, so that was important to somebody. We got a question online, which was, what's on my cup? Um, okay, so I'm glad to know people are really focused in with laser focus on what we're teaching about on Sunday mornings, but um, here's what my cup says. It's a reminder to me every Sunday. It has a picture of the running of the bulls on it, and at the top it says, tradition, just because you've always done it that way doesn't mean it's not incredibly stupid. That's what it says. Um, and so it's the reminder, although there's great value in tradition, there is also a great danger in tradition. And so we, um, uh, it's a reminder to me to, to be making sure we're analyzing and looking at things from a different perspective. And obviously, de- during this year, that's been a good um, way of thinking, is that sometimes you have to change the way you do things and do things a little bit differently. Um, and so, like, for example, if you're a, if you're a first-time guest with us, like our normal hospitality pattern is just kind of totally out the window, and so you're, you're experiencing something very different during quarantine. We don't have welcome desks and, and letters that go out. We don't have coffee and donuts. We don't have seven or eight different people greeting you on the way in. I mean, heck, you can't even see whether we're smiling at you or, or like baring our teeth like half the morning. And so um, it's a very different world, and it's, it's a challenge, no doubt, for us. Um, I think that's part of why our heart continually breaks and hopefully the yearning in us to get back to doing it the way we want to be doing it more completely, more fully. And yet at the same time, what a, what a great opportunity to, uh, to reach out in the ways that we can. Um, and another thing we're doing differently this summer, so normally we don't do anything on Wednesday nights during the summer, but what we've been doing um, is having staff interviews during the, during the summer on Wednesday nights. Those are all on the Facebook page. You can go back and look at them, but they're live um, and they're at 6 o'clock, if I remember correctly, at 6 o'clock on, uh, on Wednesday nights that we do live. And in fact, I'm gonna, John's been interviewing different members of the staff. I'm going to be, John's out this Wednesday, I'm going to be interviewing Rebecca. And so uh, uh, I'm going to be in full Barbara Walters mode. I don't know if she's in here, but if my goal is to get her to cry, that's going to be the, uh, which isn't necessarily all that challenging, but uh, where is she? <laughs> she's, she's ready to run for the hills already. Um, uh, okay, but uh, it's going to be really fun. And it's a great thing to go back and get to watch these and see, um, get some insight from, uh, from different members of the staff, and get to know them a little better. And we may just, that may become a theme. Next summer we may interview different people or, or whatever. Like this may become a theme even, even when we are back to normal, that we get a chance to on Wednesday nights uh, live or not. But, okay, so I want to make sure you know that that stuff's going on uh, and, uh, and that um, there's all kinds of opportunities. So picking up our story from Daniel chapter 5, this is kind of us being back at the ranch here. So um, as we, as we start the story, we pick up the story with a terrified man. Um, I used the example last week of, of when I was at the airport in Cairo and getting screamed at in what I assume was Arabic um, by a man with a large gun who was very, very angry being screamed at that apparently I was doing something wrong. And here I was in a foreign country, I, was, I had no idea, I thought I was going to prison in Egypt, which didn't seem like a good idea, 
Um, and, and I just had no idea what it was. And, and the level of fear in me was just about at the top. Like, I am totally not in control of this situation. Someone in authority is mad at me, and I don't know what I've done wrong, and I don't understand how to fix this, and it doesn't seem to be changing, and the level of fear I'm experiencing. Well, that's what, when you're talking about Belshazzar, God, he knows he has offended a supernatural being. He may even suspect it's the most high God, but he doesn't know really all who that, even what that would mean. But he suspects he's offended a God. He has offended one of the gods. And there, oh, look at that. You're good, you brother. You're good right there. That's right. Um, so, uh, so here we have. That's where we are with him. And so he's he's in a it's, it's a terrifying situation for him. He's very scared. His advisors, his lords, his leaders, no one can help him. No one seems to be have any insight for him. So you can imagine, you know that you have offended some almighty being and you don't even know what they're mad at you about exactly. You don't know what they've said. They just sent a hand to write on the wall by the way, somebody pointed out, I always pictured the finger just writing it in the wall. Anybody else, that's how you see it? And yet, somebody pointed out to me, it doesn't say that. It could have, literally, it could have had a pen. Uh, or even more likely, back in this era, before pens and paper, a chisel, like chiseling it into the... Anyway, but I picture a finger just burning it into the wall um, as it touches it. And he has seen this happen now and is terrified and he has no idea what's going on and no one can help him. That's where we pick up the story. So all these people, this man, this, this, this king, kind of prince king, and his lords, and now his wise men, and his wives, and his concubines are all in this room, and there's the stuff written on the wall. They can't read it, and in walks the queen. Now by the queen here, pretty much no one thinks this is one of Belshazzar's queens, because it said they were already there. Instead, most people agree that this is probably either his mother or maybe even his grandmother. That this is the wife either of his father Nabonidus or maybe one of the wives of Nebuchadnezzar, his, which would make it her his grandmother maybe. Anyway, the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords in verse 10, came into the banqueting hall and the queen, the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Now, the apologist in me has a quick question. If all of this is raw fiction, as many secular historians believe, if all of this is raw fiction, why isn't the queen mother a Jewish convert? She would have been the perfect person in this story to have decided to follow the Most High God. That because of her relationship with Nebuchadnezzar, she clearly has an extraordinarily high opinion of Daniel. Why wouldn't we, if you were just inventing this and you wanted this to show the power of the Almighty High, high God, whatever, you wouldn't, she would have been the perfect person to be a worshiper of Yahweh in the court. 
but she isn't. She still thinks of Daniel as being filled with the spirits of the gods. Even she still, after all this time, whatever she's experienced, does not give credit to the Most High God, to Yahweh. It's fascinating to me. Anyway, this, if you were inventing this, it seems like you would have done that here. Just my thought. So most people accept it's not his wife, uh, but not Belshazzar's wife, but one of the, either his mother or his grandmother. <coughs> Daniel was apparently not well known by these flash-in-the-pan kings after Nebuchadnezzar that came and went in a year or two. He was not well known among them, which honestly may be why they were flash-in-the-pan kings. Um, when you have a, an advisor like Daniel and you don't take advantage of Daniel, um, you're probably not going to be around very long. Maybe they would have had more tenure. They would have endured longer. So mom comes in or grandmother comes in to comfort her son. It says, <coughs> the language indicates that he went pale. And remember, he's, he's not a Caucasian. I mean, he's already, I mean, he's a Babylonian. He's a Middle Easterner. And so he has gone pale. And here we have, <clears throat> he, he's so terrified, his knees knock together, and she comforts him like a mom or a grandmother does because she knows there is a solution to this problem. She knows there's a solution, at least to the problem of what does the writing say. So she has a solution to this. I know at least how to get the answer. Now, I also hear a very gentle reproach in the mother's words. I hear it. Maybe you hear it, maybe not. This, the, the way she keeps rephrasing or re-saying, you know, your father, the king, mean, your ancestor, your grandfather, your whatever, whatever Nebuchadnezzar literally was to Belshazzar, probably grandfather, but your father, the king, your king, the, your father, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, your father. It's a little bit like, this. remember this great man who started all of this? He was wise enough to have this guy, Daniel, and then she just lays out this resume for Daniel that's extraordinary. He had him as leader of all of these men you've got in the room, and you don't even know who I'm talking about. I think there's a little bit of a, if you were a little wiser, son, you would also know who Daniel is. Anyway, a little bit there. Verse 13, then Daniel was brought in before the king, because notice, when his wise men and the Chaldeans and the advisors came in, Daniel didn't. He was not considered one of them for Belshazzar, apparently. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I've heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and the light and understanding and excellent wisdom is found, are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretation and solve riddles. Literally here the language means to loose knots. Now you can read the writing. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Again, I want to remind you historically what's going on right now. Belshazzar may or may not know it. We, have, we really have no way of knowing. Probably he does. But his father Nabonidus has already been conquered by the Persians. His father went out with the army of Babylon to fight the armies of Persia, and the armies of Persia have defeated the armies of Babylon. 
And at least Belshazzar, if he knows this, should know that at least he should know that the Persians are on their way to Babylon. Now, he may trust in the massive walls and impenetrable defenses of Babylon. Probably he did. He trusted in the wrong things. He is throwing this party under this heading. And here you have a man who, who for whatever reason, is throwing a party, perhaps celebrating an annual event with, this big, with all this stuff, and has brought out the implements of the temple of the Most High God to celebrate this. I'm, we'll talk more about this in a second. But understand that what's going on, as far as Belshazzar knows, it, he, he either doesn't know his father's been defeated, which seems incredibly unlikely. More likely, he should know that the Persians are coming. The Persians may be right outside his door. In fact, they are. And he doesn't know it. So understand, historically, this person is treated pretty much universally by the historians who wrote about him soon, the soonest, which is several hundred years later, pretty much as a moron. He is not looked upon highly. He's not thought of as a highly, and one of them would be an example of this. He, sh, he has work to do, and he's not doing it. So here he calls, what's interesting is he calls Daniel, Daniel, not Belteshazzar, but Daniel. So let's picture this correctly. Some people estimate that Daniel, at the youngest in this scene, is in his mid-70s. Some commentaries say as old as 90. So here you have not a young man, even though the queen remembers that the name was changed by, by Nebuchadnezzar, he's now called Daniel here by the king. Belshazzar gives a quick resume for Daniel, and this may be like an introduction. Maybe no one knows who he is at this point. And so he's coming to the courtroom of the king, even though this is all under humiliating circumstances for Belshazzar. Um, think about how humiliating this is as we're, as we're getting there. Just think in terms of how this is working out. Now, I also want to comment on something here. This is, this is one of those you know, pet peeve moments, and I'm the one with the mic, so I'm just going to say it. So I, I get pretty edgy about people giving credit. It, it always bugs me. Maybe that's everybody, but I really hate when I read a book, especially and Christian books are just infamous for this. You read a whole Christian book, and they make all kinds of claims about this or that or the other, and they never cite anything. So you either have to assume they're inventing it out of whole cloth, or they're failing to give credit for whoever it was who actually came up with it. Now, that's, that's, that bugs me. Um, I, love, I love to tell you when an idea that, that I'm t speaking about came from Paul or John or, or somebody else that I know that I can send something out to. Sometimes it's people you never heard of, but I, I always want to go like, this, this is what so-and-so said. What a great idea. This. What a great insight. This like this is something that actually is important to me. And, and so what's fun is um, I was really stressing over this and bugged by this, and I had no way to comment on this until I remembered that this is in this section. Last week, those of you who remember you may remember that I said something about how I had told Mark that he should reach out to Stephen Young and get some time with him as a leader. Well, on the way home, Mark was like, in all gentleness, and he knows this is important to me, and I would want to know this. He was like, actually, I'm, I came to you, told you I wanted to get time with Stephen Young. It was, it was my idea, not your idea. And I was like, oh my gosh, you're exactly right. I totally took credit for something that was yours. And I was like, I can't bring that up in a sermon again next week. Like, and yet, this is right here. Like, this is actually part of my notes in the Bible here. It's like, comment on the fact that you should give credit where credit is due. That was Mark's idea. So, it was, that was, anyway. So, 
This is, this is one of those deals that it's, it's a big deal. And here you have, so it just, it just feels weaselly to me that Belshazzar says like, oh, I've heard of you. Does that feel weaselly to you? No, you haven't. You, literally what you mean is, yeah, my mom just told me about you like 10 seconds ago. I had no idea who you were until just a few minutes ago when grandma or mom, whoever she is to him, told me about you. And that's the first I'd ever heard of you. I just, anybody else? That's just me. I'm like, come on, man. Yeah, mom just told me, at least say that. So, sorry. Okay, okay, so uh, it, it, not cool. Hey, it's kind of like, um, you know, parents, when you, uh, you this, is, this happens in our house all the time. One of my kids will be looking for something, and I'll be like, I, I, here, I'll go look with them, and I'll go find it. I'm like, here's your little thing. And they go run back to mom and like, mommy, I found it. <laughs> did, did not. I found that. <laughs> anyway, all right. Um, now, another thing struck me that felt very weaselly to me, and even cruel, possibly. Now, maybe I'm wrong about this. I may be misreading this entirely. But I have this image of, of Daniel coming into the room. He's 70, 80, 90 years old. He hasn't been home 60, 70 years. And the first thing that Belshazzar says is, Oh, you're Daniel. You're one of those exiles from Judah. That just feels either incredibly clueless to me or cruel. Hey, you remember that, don't you? Remember that we kidnapped you from your home when you were a kid? You still remember that, Daniel? Yeah, that was us. We did that. We kidnapped you all those years ago. Isn't it so sad that you've not been home since then, Daniel? It just, it just feels, I don't know if this is a power thing that Belshazzar is going to point out right at the very beginning. I'm just going to make sure you hear this, Daniel. You're just one of those exiles from Judah. I really don't know what's going on here. It's just terribly clueless or intentionally inflammatory. And this, this pattern has continued over and over again. This is not the response of a man who realizes, I'm in a situation where I am being humbled right now. I'm being humiliated right now, and he doesn't seem to get this. That's, that's pretty bad. It's bad enough when you can't be teachable, when you can't be humbled. But when you clearly are being humbled and you still don't see it, that's, that's pretty horrifying. So I, I think there's a, this pattern has continued. His gods have failed him. The representatives of his gods have failed him. This isn't, this apparently, these wise men, all these Chaldeans are going, hey, we don't know who wrote this. It's not from one of our gods. We can't read that. We can't interpret that. We don't know what it says. And Belshazzar has to seek out a representative of Yahweh, the very God who he was offending with his party. The very God that he was going, you know what? If I want to use these holy vessels for just my people to use at a party, I will. And no one can stop me. And then God stops him, shuts him down, humiliates all of his leaders and all of his royal guides. And now he's had to reach out to this old man who is the only, maybe the only living representative in the, in the, of the wise men anywhere of the God, and he has to bring him in. And he doesn't realize he's being humiliated. There's a horrible situation for him. It's like God intentionally set up a situation in which Belshazzar would have to call for Daniel. I mean, this message could have been written in, in Belshazzar's language, couldn't it? I mean, the finger could have written this in Belshazzar's language, and in Belshazzar would have known immediately that he was in big, big trouble. But no, 
God wrote it in a language, and God knew there was one person in the kingdom. It's almost like God was going, I don't deign to speak to you yourself. He spoke directly to Nebuchadnezzar. He spoke through messages. Nebuchadnezzar. Here you have God creating multiple layers of interpretation. I'm sending an angel to write on a wall in a language you can't read so that you have to find an interpreter because I'm that distant from you. I'm not willing to talk to you face to face like I did your father slash grandfather. Like I'm, not, I'm not willing to do that. No one has respect for this man. Out of all engagements we see with Daniel with any authorities, this is the edgiest by far. What you're about to get is by far the edgiest response between Daniel and one of the authorities. Picture the old wise man, left alone for many years now, pulled away from his favorite chair, from his friends, from his prayers, from his scriptures, to stand in front of a young bully of a royal prince. What came to me immediately when I imagined this was in a lot of war movies, all of you uh, combat veterans or, or veterans will appreciate this, I think. In war movies all the time, you'll have this scene where you've got the, the new, fresh, young lieutenant straight from officer training school, right? And, and this happens in a lot of movies. And he will go out and immediately begin barking orders at some old, wizened sergeant major, you know? And that never goes well for the lieutenant. It just... I mean, the sergeant major, because he's, the, you know, the lieutenant's the authority. So he would, but it just, it just turns out ugly. And the whole purpose of that scene in the movies is to just kind of make you hate that guy, right? Like, who does that, right? Come on. I mean, that guy's got 30 years of combat experience on you, and here you are. You, 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 like, you, you haven't even worn the shine off of your lieutenants yet, and, you're, and yet here you are being all, all lordly. That's how this feels to me. In fact, I've decided now... Um, Daniel walks in, and he sees the vessels from the temple to his God, from Jerusalem, strewn about in a huge mess, in disarray with Belshazzar's wives, and his concubines, and his peacock royalty. And I finally realized who I know, who I want to play old Daniel, if this is ever put into a movie. So I have, that's who I want. I want an angry Sam Elliott. Maybe this one. That's not a great picture, right? That's the exact look on his face. He walks in, he sees all this stuff around here, and he gives this look. And it, it just to put a chill in anyone who's intelligent enough to know their life is in danger, right? Like they should, I don't know if Belshazzar gets it, but you, can you imagine Daniel looking around and seeing this? I'm going to, I'm going to, nah, that'd be jumping too far ahead. I'll come back to could you jump all the way ahead? It's way down there to the Matthew Poole quotes um, that has one, two, and three. Okay, so Matthew Poole is a Presbyterian scholar from the mid-1600s. He's one of the um, commentaries I often look at. Uh, he was a... Uh, anyway, so here's what he wrote. You, you, I, just, I feel like Matthew Poole feels about this moment like Daniel did. Okay, So here's the three things he wrote. They have brought the vessels of his house before thee to drink wine in them, to profane them in your idolatrous feasts, and you have all polluted them with your filthy, blasphemous mouths, concubines and all. Well, they can write in the 1600s, couldn't they? Dang, he's not happy about this. Number two, you have praised the idols of metal, wood, and stone, which cannot hear, nor see, nor know. Number three, 
and, the, and hast not glorified the true God in whose hands thy breath is and all thy ways. Yea, thou hast highly dishonored and affronted and reproached him. So going back all the way back up. Verse 17. That's, I think, what's in Daniel's heart in this moment. So verse 17, then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gift be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. He starts with those words, keep your stuff. Just keep it. You keep your gifts, you keep your honors. And of course, Daniel's looking at the wall and he knows what it says. I mean, Daniel already knows what this says, and he knows what it means. Is Daniel really interested in now being a high official in a doomed administration? Probably not. Daniel seems already tired of this man's presence. That's how it feels to me. Daniel walked into Belshazzar's presence. He sees what's going on, and Daniel's already ready to go home and take a nap, right? And a shower. Daniel's little, the, the little short sermon about pride is called for here. So Daniel's going to give a mini-sermon on pride to this punk. Like old men do, Daniel's going to task him to remember the past. Verse 18, O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. Boy, Daniel still has a thing in his heart for Nebuchadnezzar, doesn't he? And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Remember, Belshazzar is in a kingdom surrounded by enemies. He's not exactly, yeah, I know Nebuchadnezzar and you're no Nebuchadnezzar, right? When he would, he killed. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, He was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. You see the juxtaposition there. You have Nebuchadnezzar with all this power. He kills whom he wants. He raises up whom he wants to raise up, and he humbles whoever he wants to humble. But there's someone who raises up Nebuchadnezzar when he wants and humbles Nebuchadnezzar when he wants. That's why Nebuchadnezzar is king. But God is the king of kings. That's the difference. Nebuchadnezzar was a king among kings. He was a king over kings, and yet the Most High God was still even over Nebuchadnezzar. God humbled him. Your father, literally your grandfather, your ancestor, was twice the man that you are, and God humbled him. From greatness, glory, and majesty to a wild beast in a moment. From control over the life and death of anyone to the inability to control his own urge to eat grass. God fully and completely humbled Nebuchadnezzar. If you weren't here for that part, you can go back a couple of chapters when we went through all of that. In summary... The plaque, God revealed mystery to Nebuchadnezzar. God rescued his people from Nebuchadnezzar. That's why we have this plaque that we imagine hanging in a temple somewhere in Babylon. God rescued his people from Nebuchadnezzar. 
and he humbled Nebuchadnezzar in his pride. We watch now, we watched him do the same things here with Belshazzar, but much more powerfully, painfully, and finally. We're going to see Belshazzar, who apparently has not visited the temple in a long time, enough to know this. So that's where we are. Here we have one of my favorite quotes from Prince Caspian. Aslan speaking says this, You come from the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve, says Aslan, and that is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. That's who we are. That's why as as Christians we have this weird version of humanism where we go, yes, humans are awesome. We are created in God's image. Look at the amazing things we're responsible to do. Look at how we can bless and encourage each other. Look at what our technological advances can do. Look at what our our medical understanding can accomplish, etc., etc. This is a blessing of who we are. It's amazing. The human race is amazing. And can be, can be humbled in an instant. One wrong step, one bad decision, or even under the best of circumstances, we still fall so short of the, who God is. Both are true simultaneously. And as Christians, we get to embrace both, not one or the other. Until he knew, what, until Nebuchadnezzar knew what clearly Belshazzar, you do not. What did you learn from this? Belshazzar, what did you learn from the experience of your grandfather? Look around. The indication would be nothing. Verse 22, And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. You have lifted you up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised gods of silver and gold, of bronze and iron, of wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hands is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Man, pride plus ignorance is an ugly combination. Isn't it? Anyone ever been on social media? Pride plus ignorance is an ugly combination. It's, it is, it's, it's like that, com- whatever that word is, that com- combination of those two things, it's one of the things we honor most powerfully in America now, in our culture, is pride plus ignorance. That's, like the, that's apparently the most honored trait we can find now. The God who gave power to your family and humbled it, you have now offended that God. I, I love that Daniel uses the terminology of the one who holds your very breath. Isn't that a fascinating picture of the integrated nature of our relationship with God? Years ago, I read a quote. I can't remember who said it, so I apologize because it just came to me. Um, if, if I remember it in a second, I'll say it. But um, uh, it was a writer who said, to add God to our already busy lives is just to complicate it. But to integrate our lives into the authority of Jesus Christ simplifies it. I'm paraphrasing, but that's the, that's the basic concept. That's who we are. We get this opportunity to live this out. We go, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just add God to my life and have a few hours on Sunday morning. But the truth is God holds every breath, each and every breath. We think is, is yes, it is, it is performed by our lungs and our diaphragm and all that kind of stuff, and at the same time is also a gift from God who holds our every breath. Verses the idols you're worshiping with the things from his temple. 
Again, the irony and the pain and the ugliness of going, okay, so you took something from the actual, the temple of the actual Most High God, and then you used those to worship things that you made. This is a constant theme of this section of Daniel, is the, is the ridiculousness of idol worship. When we as humans make something, that's great. Then to worship it is utterly ignorant. Like, why on earth would you worship something you made? Apparently, you are more worthy of worship than it is. But you don't worship you. That would be, that would be ridiculous. The God who you offended. They cannot see. They cannot hear. They cannot know. They're just inanimate objects. Bad news for you, the Most High God. He sees and hears and knows. He sees. He knows what's going on. He's experiencing all of this. This is still the issue with worshiping what the world worships today instead of God. 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul writes to the uh, church in Corinth, Not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness. What accord has Christ with Belial, one of the names for the devil? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." The temptation for us to join what is holy with what is unholy is idol worship. When you take something that is holy and you connect it to something else, that's to worship that thing. And the problem is we are made holy. So I grew up more tradition in the traditional church that taught this idea of being the temple of God, primarily about healthy decisions, right? Actually, no, it was about smoking. That's what it was about. It was 100% about smoking. And so there were all types of unhealthy decisions we were making all the time, but this one was the one that was picked on. Like that's, that's just because we're the, you don't smoke because that's the temple of God. That's, I mean, it may not be wise to smoke, but this is, that is not this passage. That's not what this passage is saying. This passage is about taking something unholy and applying it to something holy. And here's what we don't realize is that what's holy is us. We now, because the Holy Spirit of God dwells in us, we are now like temples to that God. And so for us to worship in anything else, for us to bring an idol into our lives is to say, I'm now bringing an idol into the temple of God. That's why we don't do that. We don't idolize anything else, whether that's another person. How common is it for us as husbands to idolize our wives? I mean, it's, it's, a, constant, it's a constant decision not to. How come... How, how, how common is it for us as parents to idolize our children? It's easy to do. And now we're turning them into an idol, and they don't, they, that's not their fault, that's our fault. We are now turning them into that. Versus, But how easy is it for us to take money, or jobs, or influence, or approval, or little clicks of thumbs sticking up, or whatever, and we call those, once we call those holy, and they're not, and we try to bring them into our lives, then we end up making a mistake with that. It's not that they're evil, not that they're bad. In fact, if we give them the proper place, us engaging in them gives them a version of holiness. But when they begin to take on too much of a role in our lives, 
That's how those things can become like idols, when we begin to trust in them instead of trusting in God. Boy, our own emotions is probably the main one of these now. The main one in America now is that we idolize our own feelings. I should be able to act on what I feel. What I feel is what makes something authentic, for example. And that's not, that's not biblical. It's not how that works. We are instead to be not worshiping the, what the world worships, but we are worshipers of the true, most high God who sees, who hears, and who knows. Past generations have had to learn, unlearn, and relearn this over and over again. And here we are again. Do we learn? Here's, here's a great kind of final lesson from this, from this teaching in this passage. Can we learn from our parents and grandparents? This is, this is something that is, is easy for us to not do in our pride. We don't idolize our parents and our grandparents, but we seek to learn from them. We can apply this to issues that many of the issues we face today, like racism, addictive things, broken relationships. Can we learn from the mistakes of our parents and our grandparents and our ancestors? We need to. Nebuchadnezzar made a huge mistake. He had decided at some point, this is about me. And God humbled him for that. And Belshazzar two generations later, is going, this is about me. And Daniel's going, really? It hadn't been that long since God humbled a man who was twice the man you are for the same sentiment, and now here you are with that sentiment. Why would you do that? We must learn. We must know our history well enough. We must know church history well enough. We must know Baptist history well enough. We need to know Christian history well enough. We need to know our own families well enough. Why is it, as a therapist, we can, we can draw what's called a genogram and show broken relationships, and we see recapitulated patterns in families over and over and over again? Why is that? Why aren't we learning from that? Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we have that option. Don't trust in the wrong things that your parents and your grandparents trusted in. Do they trust in money or power or dominance or themselves? Let's learn from that. Did they trust in their emotions? Did they trust in their lies? What did they trust in? Let's learn from that. And the things they trusted in that were right, let's learn from that too. Did they trust in God's holy word? Did they trust in the truth? Did they trust in rational thinking? Well, those are things that we can put some more faith in. So this is a great lesson here in this passage as we see Belshazzar. Belshazzar is one of our examples in the Bible. There's a handful of them. One of our examples in the Bible that is a negative example. This is, he is exactly the picture of the old steamboat crashed on the side of the Mississippi River. See where that steamboat went? Don't, don't go there. And Belshazzar lives that out for us in a beautiful way. Nebuchadnezzar does some, and then at the same time, Nebuchadnezzar got it by some point. And we can go, okay, I can learn from both. Belshazzar is pretty much a negative. Like, don't, see what he's doing? Yeah, don't do that. And see this? Yeah, don't, don't do that either. And that one? Let's avoid that. So we're learning from it. we got one more section in which we watch God truly, powerfully glorify himself in history in a really cool way um, next week as we finish up chapter 5. And, uh, and then we'll be moving into chapter 6, which is everyone's favorite chapter in Daniel. So we'll have a lot of fun with that. 
Um, so let's, let's pray, and the, the main teaching of all of chapter 4 and 5 really is this. Check your pride. Check where you are. Check where you're finding value. Check what you're putting uh, value in. Check what you're worshiping. Check what you're pursuing. Look internally. Is there something to learn here? So that's a, it's a wonderful section, and we all need it. If you say, listen, I don't have anything that I, I don't have an issue with pride, you have, a, you have an issue with pride, right? So uh, all of us get to do this one together. So let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the truth of your Scripture to speak into us. God, we are all infected by this, this humanistic pride. God, we just we don't know when to quit. We, we can appreciate the gifts that you've given us and the intelligence and the skills and the abilities and, the, and all of these different things. And at the same time, Lord, you give us the opportunity to recognize that those are gifts from you. The very breath we breathe is a gift from you, every little thing. We sure find a whole lot of pride in things that are rooted in our ability to breathe. And Lord, I pray that you would remind us daily that we would live with gratitude to you, that we would understand where we stand with you, no matter what good things we have and no matter what trials and challenges we faced. God, I pray we would look to you with gratitude. Um, as a father who loves, who redeems, and who restores, um, Lord, I thank you that you do that. God, I pray that, that we would get to be some of those people who learn in time to be restored. You're a loving God who wants us to learn. God, help us to be teachable to do our part. Thank you, Father. You're so good to us. God, I know there's so many challenges in our nation today, and we pray diligently and faithfully for a true awakening in our culture and in our nation. And Lord, we, are, we watch the world scramble, lost, confused. Um, God, even as we learn and we recognize our own failures and our own pride and our need to make decisions to apologize and to seek forgiveness and to seek out others, um, God, in the midst of that type of healthy humility, I pray, Lord, you would, you would work in us. We, we really have a huge advantage because we know you. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would guide us through that knowledge and not through our own. Lead us not, we don't want to follow our own understanding, but in all our ways, Lord, we acknowledge you. Please, Lord, make our path straight. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen.